This week on the show, we look at evaluating FreeBSD current for production use, time machine-like backups on OpenBSD, FreeBSD on the Graviton 3, compiling the NetBSD kernel as a benchmark, network management with the OpenBSD packet filter toolset from BSDCAN 2022, hardware detection and diagnostics for new FreeBSD users, and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 459, the NetBSD kernel benchmark, recorded on the 8th of June, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backups for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show or want to show a little bit of uh, gratification from your side or remove ads this way, we have a Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash bsdnow and check out various offerings that we have there. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. My name is Benedikt Reuschling. And, and my name is Tom Jones. Uh, yes, the usual folks in that category, but next week might be someone else. We keep switching around, but people may have discovered a pattern here and there <laughs> by now. <laughs> uh, we've been busy collecting articles and material as always, and this makes up part of this episode. Uh, starting with news from Clara Systems blog, ever uh, busy writing articles. This one is evaluating FreeBSD current for production use. And I hear a certain Tom Jones was involved, so I'm reading that. So that's how it works. Um, it starts with the FreeBSD operating system introduces new features in current, its main development branch. Snapshots of current are made available as installer images weekly, making it easy to follow the current branch directly by simply building a newer FreeBSD system from the source as changes land. So first, why FreeBSD current, right? Following current can take a lot of work since FreeBSD releases are stabilized over a long development process, but current is where new features first arrive and get tested. Current doesn't get official security or radar notices, so users must follow developments via the commit logs and mailing lists, creating obvious downsides to running it in production. This doesn't stop large organizations such as Netflix using systems based on current in production, but doing so responsibly means having an experienced team capable of catching and mitigating issues in current before they reach the production stack. Why might you want to run FreeBSD current? If you have a large modified code base, you are building a product based on FreeBSD. Current gives you a look into the future of FreeBSD. Running current will help you understand changes that are happening in the FreeBSD operating system, and it gives you an opportunity to see how your stack performs with new features. Okay. Running current can help you address incompatibilities in the software you run long before they appear in a release. As new FreeBSD releases get closer, you might want to run current to validate that your software stack runs and performs well and report problems upstream in time for them to be fixed. <laughs> current includes a number of features that make it easier for FreeBSD to make the system more reliable. These debugging features detect errors in the system and alert system users when the error occurs. In addition to breaking bugs, they can even catch behaviors that simply result in undesired behaviors. These features help give FreeBSD releases the high level of reliability we love, but they come at the cost of system performance. That is why in the updating file in root of the FreeBSD source tree, uh, there is a warning big enough for everyone to see. Uh, like note to people who think that FreeBSD, in this case 14.x, is slow. So they talk about there in the debugging that the debugging uh, features have been turned on, which makes things slow, but they also show you how to uh, disable them. So it's running at uh, the speed you are uh, used to in a release. So that is the warning. So you know what you have to do there. And this is the caveat here. This warning was added during the development of FreeBSD 5. FreeBSD 5 saw the introduction of many SMP features, including debugging options with high overhead. Benchmarks of FreeBSD 5 looking to see SMP-rated performance improvements saw an apparent reduction of performance instead. If early testers don't understand the impact of debugging features, they can make FreeBSD pre-releases look bad. I, I tried so, to figure out if there was more history to this note. Um, and it seemed that genuinely it was Pharonix, who are, are famous for doing a lot of benchmarks, hmm. uh, benchmarking FreeBSD and being like, we thought it was going to be faster with all this cool new SMP stuff, and it really wasn't. And I was so I was so confused to figure out find out like how long Pharonix has been going. Uh, it was all the way back in like the depths of FreeBSD. 
Uh, yep, they were testing FreeBSD and getting the wrong answers, still one. <laughs> yeah, so don't benchmark current unless you remove the debugging symbols. Uh, otherwise, you will be very disappointed. Uh, that's what the section uh, next is about, understanding FreeBSD development features. So here we have a bit of um, the various features that make the debugging possible, invariance, witness, and malloc debugging. So in short, invariance features include extra walks of lists in loops, more assertions, and checks for points that never should become null. Points or pointers? Pointers. Probably more pointers. Weak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I should never get zero points. These extra tests can be costly, but also expose errors in the system. Witness, on the other hand, tracks when locks are acquired and released in the kernel, as well as keeping track of the order in which locks are taken. So they witness those. If you have ever seen the lock order reversal message in dmessage, that is witness in action. And finally, malloc uh, debugging features enable tracking of use after free conditions, the collection of memory usage statistics, and assertions that help protect against common errors. And then there's a part about A-B testing, FreeBSD current. Uh, here you will show in this article that you not only can build a current system with the debugging features disabled, but also perform some benchmarks to test the impact debugging features have on performance. So you test um, a debugged system or with debugged system versus a one without. And that offers the uh, special kernel configuration file called generic-no-debug, which disables a lot of the debugging features so that current can be more accurately benchmarked and evaluated for performance. So there, that is shown and what it does, it's basically including the normal generic kernel, but um, removes some of the uh, conf std.no-debug parts, which um, exactly remove those or disable them. And with that, it's fairly straightforward to rebuild that kernel and install it. And then you have a recent kernel, but without debugging. Uh, here you have used the development machine with the Ryzen uh, 32 gigs of RAM and NVMe storage to test the performance impact. And the system was installed with a recent 14 current image on ZFS on root. And as a latest tip of the tree from Git, and you use the boot environment because you wanted to help yourself when things get dire to more easily perform differential A-B tests in very similar environments. Okay, then you have a bit of a section about benchmarking. We covered benchmarking um, in previous articles, but it's basically displaying uh, how to benchmark properly and how to collect the results and also display them properly or graphically in this case. And here's a bit of uh, iperf3 uh, benchmarks and the same is also done there for displaying the results and measuring properly. Ah yes, very nice. And in conclusion, when it comes to performance benchmarking, you should always test with workloads which accurately model your real workloads. Most workloads will benefit significantly from disabling current debugging features, but some CPU-only tasks won't. It is important to know how upgrades to FreeBSD are going to impact your servers, and testing current is the best way to know what is going to happen in the future FreeBSD releases. If you integrate current hosts into your tests or part of your production environment, it is important to disable its development-only debugging features. Failing to do so is likely to give you a false impression of how FreeBSD is progressing. Yeah, since a promising commit offering a huge performance increase may easily be overshadowed by the performance impact of witness and the invariance debugging. Yeah, very good. That's an article uh, that's giving a good overview, but also looking a bit more deeper into the benchmarking side. Yeah, it's worth looking at the the improvement you get as well for uh, the no debug case. So, I mean, I only looked at three benchmarks in the article. So for doing a kernel build, which is a pretty typical task for me, um, the debug uh, average was like 220 seconds with debug, and then it's more like uh, 140 seconds with no debug. No, so there's, yeah, a, there's a huge, like a huge improvement, and the same for a networking benchmark. So to move 100 gig, 100 gigabytes over localhost is sort of half the time with no debug. Um, hmm. And so workloads that you're touching the the kernel and the memory, well, the kernel a lot and the memory allocators are, are see a big improvement when you turn off the debugging features. But LZ bench no improvement, it's the same, uh, slower hmm. in some cases, uh, and it's just funny to see. Uh, but yeah, it's really, yeah, it was fun. It was, and it's good to see that you, if you have a FreeBSD build machine that's following current, you should definitely put the no debug in because then it would be a lot faster. <laughs> okay, next up we have uh, an article from Matthias, um, and it is titled "Time Machine Like Backups and OpenBSD." Uh, before I start on the article, I was trying to figure out who wrote this, and to figure it out, I had to go to 
their contact page. And then I had to use finger uh, and finger their uh, f.xosc.org, uh, which is the domain that's what this post is on, uh, to get a name for, for the author. So I thought it was really funny. Mm. Nerds. Okay. Uh, so, so Matthias writes, uh, Time Machine is a backup software by Apple, part of macOS, allowing easy and foolproof backups. In a nutshell, it creates incremental backups on a storage medium of your choice, and you can access the data either with a graphical client or directly via file system tools. I especially like that you only have to plug in an external USB drive, which is immediately recognized. The backup starts, and the drive is unmounted as soon as the backup is done. Since Time Machine is Apple only, and I use OpenBSD on all my personal machines, I decided to write my own Time Machine-like solution. So the goals of the solution are uh, automatic incremental backups as soon as US external USB device is connected, automatic unmounting as soon as the backup is done, all data is fully encrypted, no proprietary backup format, just plain files on disk. Turns out I can solve the goals with the most mostly base software and one program from ports. So first, uh, you need to prepare the external storage. First, we need to manually format the disk and create an encrypted file system on top. Plug in the disk and find the correct device number by looking at T-Message. Uh, format it with FDisk and create a disk label. Since the disk is later controlled by a script, we cannot use a passphrase. We need to store, store the decryption password in a file. The use of Use the tool of your choice to generate a strong password and store it in a file. To match the passphrase in the disk, name the file after the disk's DUID, which can be seen in disk label output. Uh, as last step, set the file's permission to 600 so that only the owner can access it. Otherwise, BioCTL complains about the wrong permissions. Make sure you save the file in a secure location on your machine. In my case, it's stored in slash root and owned by the root user. Further, write the generated password somewhere down in case you need to access your backup disk without having access to your machine. That's a, that's a good failure case mm -hmm. to print against. <laughs> you could print it on a piece of paper and store it somewhere safe. Uh, and, and Matthias shows how to do that. Um, and then he has a disk lab label session showing how to set up the, the disk with OpenBSD. Uh, and then to double test, everything works with designed to detach and reattach the disk. Um, and it should uh, go away and come back. And that should hopefully tell you that it's working. Um, and then on top of the encrypted layer, you need to create a file system. And now it's time to write a script to uh, set this up. So now we make sure that the disk is recognized by the system as soon as it's connected. This can be done with hot plug D, which um, is an OpenBSD tool. To identify the disk, we need to look at the disk level of each attached disk and run a script as soon as connected. So then there's a script listed. So what does the script, uh, the script above do? It's called by hot plug D every time a device is attached. It checks if a disk is attached, dev class is two and then gets the disk's DUID from the disk label. If the DUID matches uh, the one on the backup disk, in our case, uh, it starts a script called root openbsd time machine backup.sh. The script gets three parameters, the, disk UI, the DUID of the USB disk, the DUID of the encrypted disk label within the first one, uh, full path to the file with the passphrase. It also logs some information to syslog to make sure where a backup disk is connected. Uh, and then to do the backup itself, uh, our snapshot is used for backing up the data. According to the website, our snapshot is a file system snapshot utility based on rsync. Our, our snapshot makes it possible to makes it easy to make periodic snapshots of local machines and remote machines over SSH. The code makes extensive use of hard links whenever possible to greatly reduce the disk space required. So exactly where we're, we're looking for. It's available in OpenBSD ports, uh, and then it needs to be configured, and Matthias shows how. And then we have the backup script. The script is quite simple and just decrypts the disk, mounts it, and runs our snapshot to create an incremental backup. You should not need to change something. However, double check the following points. To avoid nested mounts, the script uses slash backup as a mount point for the external device. If you prefer another location, you have to change the mount point variable at the beginning of the script and don't forget to change our snapshots config as well. As seen above, I created the outer partition as SDXA, notice the small letter A, and the inner partition is SDXI, notice the small letter I. If you choose a different partition and disk label, you have to change the BIOCTL commands to mount. If you use different names for our snapshots backup levels, so others that are alphabet gamma, you have to modify the script accordingly. Upon the first call, a counter is written to the backup disk. Every eighth run, uh, our snapshot gamma backup is done. Every fourth, a beta backup. 
and an alpha and all other runs. And a big script. Uh, and then, so with the script set up and with Hotplugt configured, once the disk is connected, you should see a backup job running and similar output in var log messages and with timestamps. Didn't you write an article, Benedict, for the FreeBSD journal for with a similar thing? Uh, yeah, I did. That's using the actual Apple Time Machine and uh, making it think that your own machine is like a time capsule that you could buy or still can buy. And you can make that server act like a, an Apple Time Machine. That's cool. And the, the software is in ports. It's basically uh, attaching and detaching when the device is uh, nearby and then making the, the Delta uh, replication to the device. Mm -hmm. But this could be easily done on uh, non-OpenBSD systems uh, with like DevD and stuff if they don't have the HotplugD. And the rest, the uh, rsync software, uh, our snapshot is uh, available on other Unix systems. So I, I, almost, I almost want it to go the other way. I almost want to back up uh, a FreeBSD machine to a Mac so I can use uh, infinite storage on Backblaze on a, on a Mac OS host. Oh, the other way around. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, I don't think I would be supported. I'm sure I could, I'm sure I could hack something else <laughs> Not <together>. natively. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should just pay for the bytes I'm keeping in the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> But the nice thing about my solution with the time machine is that it's on ZFS and you can extend that because the, the time machine is smart enough to figure, oh, it doesn't have enough storage space on that. And so it deletes automatically the oldest uh, backups. And with ZFS expanding more, you can just keep the older snapshots around longer or the older yeah, cool. versions. Sounds really cool. Okay, let's jump into our news roundup this week. We have Colin Percival write about his AWS work, this time FreeBSD on the Graviton 3. So he, uh, on Demonic Dispatches, his blog, writes that Amazon announced the Graviton 3 processor in C7G instance family in November 2021, but it took six months before they were ready for general availability. In the meantime, however, as the maintainer of the FreeBSD slash EC2 platform, Colin was able to get early access to these instances. As far as FreeBSD is concerned, Graviton 3 is mostly just a faster version of the Graviton 2. Most things, quote unquote, just work. And things which don't work on Graviton 2, hot plug devices, and cleanly shutting down an instance via the EC2 API also don't work on Graviton 3. And he has a side note here, want to help get these fixed, sponsor uh, Colin Percival's work, and so that he can uh, put in more time to get these features implemented. The more notable architectural difference with the Graviton 3 is the addition of pointer authentication, which makes use of unused bits in pointers to guard against some vulnerabilities like buffer overflows, which overwrite the pointers. Uh, Andy Turner recently added support for ARM64 pointer authentication to FreeBSD. There's a separate link to that. And uh, But since Graviton 3 is largely a faster Graviton 2, the obvious question is how much faster? So Colin launched a couple instances, c6g.8xlarge and c67g.8xlarge with 500 gigabyte root disks and started comparing. The first performance test he did uh, ran on FreeBSD as a quick micro benchmark of hashing performance. The MD5 command, also known as SHA-1, SHA-256, SHA-512, and many other things, has a time trial mode which hashes 100,000 blocks of 100,000 bytes each. No, oh, 10,000 bytes each. Okay, so he ran a few of these hashes. And in this one, he found that an MD5, the speed up Graviton 2 versus Graviton 3, uh, is 1.05x. SHA-1 is 1.38x. Uh, for SHA-256, it's moderate 1.01x. And in SHA-512, it's 2.79x. Oh, that's the fastest of these. Okay. First two of these hashes are implemented in FreeBSD as pure C code. Here we see Graviton 3 pulling slightly ahead. The SHA-256 and SHA-512 hashes make use of ARM64's graph cryptographic extensions, which have special instructions for these operations. So it's no surprise that SHA-256 uh, has identical performance on both CPUs. For SHA-512, however, it seems that Graviton 3 has far more optimized implementations of the ARM64 extensions, since it beats Graviton 2 by almost a factor of 3. Okay, moving on. Next thing he did was to get a copy of the FreeBSD source and ports trees. Three commands. First, install git using the package utility. Second, git clone the FreeBSD source tree. And third, use portsnap to get the latest ports tree. 
And this is uh, last one is a largely a benchmark of the fork performance since PointSnap is a shell script. Okay, so what does that give us? The package install git, uh, real versus uh, uh, real time versus CPU time, Graviton 2 versus Graviton 3. Uh, the speed up here in the package install git is uh, for real 1.05x, CPU 1.4x. The git clone performance is a speed up of 1.41 in the real CPU. And in the CPU itself, 1.32x and port snap fetch extract, uh, it's 1.28x for the real and 1.32 uh, for uh, CPU. These commands are all fetching data from previously mirrors and extracting files to disk. So we should expect that changing the CPU alone would yield limited improvements. And indeed, that's exactly what, uh, what we were seeing. Real war clock time. Package command only drops from 19.13 to 18.1 seconds, only a 1.05 speed up because most of the time package is running, the CPU is idling anyway. The speed up in CPU time, in contrast, is a factor of 1.40. Similarly, the git clone and port snap commands spend some of their time waiting for network or disk, but the CPU time usage drops by a factor of 1.32. Okay, so now that we have a FreeBSD source tree cloned, Colin had to run the most classic FreeBSD benchmark, rebuilding the FreeBSD base system, world and kernel. So he checked out the 13.1 release source tree, that's still fresh from the oven. <laughs> uh, normally he would uh, test build using head, but the, for benchmarking purposes, he wanted to make sure that other people would be able to run exactly the same compile later. See how that nicely integrates with Tom's article we uh, covered earlier. There's a theme and, today. Yes, yeah, definitely something in there. And so he timed the make build word, build kernel J32, which is the number of CPU cores on that system. And the results here, Graviton 2 versus 3. The speed up in real is 1.42x and the CPU 1.45x. And here to see uh, the Graviton 3 really started to shine. Well, there's some disk I.O. to slow things down. The entire compile fits into the disk cache. The source tree is on the one gigabyte and the object tree is around five gigabytes. While the instances he was building on uh, has 64 gigs of RAM. So almost all of the time is spent on actual compiling or waiting for compiles to finish. While we run with J32, the FreeBSD build is not perfectly paralyzed. And on average, only 26 uh, cores are used at the the time okay the freebsd base system build completes on the graviton 3 in 9 minutes 57 seconds so okay let's say 10 minutes uh, compared to 14 minutes and 9 seconds on the graviton 2 that's certainly a speed up of 1.42 okay so what's uh that's with the base system what about third party packages so he built apache 24 uh, xorg and libreoffice well that's huge including all of their dependencies starting from a clean system each time um yeah, and he made fetch recursive first so that it doesn't have to wait for follow-up packages or dependency packages to be fetched first. So it had all the sources that it required to just compile and compile and compile. Apache 2.4 ran with a speed up of 1.36 and CPU was 1.42. Xorg is 1.31 in real and CPU time 1.43. While LibreOffice, that monster, uh, 1.38x in real time and 1.43 in CPU. Okay. Here again, we see a large reduction in CPU time by a factor of 1.42 or 1.43 even uh, from the Graviton 3, although at the usual real time shows somewhat less improvement, even with the source code already downloaded. So a non-trivial amount of time is spent extracting the tarballs. All told, the Graviton 3 is very nice improvement over the Graviton 2, with the exception of SHA-256, which at 1.2 gigabytes per second, is likely more than fast enough already. We consistently see a CPU speed up of between 30% and 45%. Uh, so Connie looks forward to moving some of those <laughs> of his workloads across to Graviton 3 based instances. Okay. Yeah, and again, if you want to support Colin's work on EC2 AWS, uh, which is a lot, and he has done a lot of work uh, on his own spare time, consider sponsoring him. He has its own uh, Patreon. And so that way he may spend more time getting FreeBSD to be a good platform in AWS. We, we, we also have a Patreon and you could support us so we can There's keep bringing that. you excellent updates on There's compiling that. BSDs. Ah, the like, synergy effects are so like, great. <laughs> like this next article from Niels, compiling when NetBSD kernel as a benchmark. I, I told you there was a theme. For a while, Niels writes, uh, for a while I've been compiling my own NetBSD kernel just for a few options, mainly CARP, at first for my Raspberry Pis, and at the moment for Power Virtualized Zen DOM use. Compiling a custom NetBSD kernel is a very easy task. It's a matter of three steps. Getting with sources, 
copying the configuration file, then modifying this copy, and then using build.sh in order to compile tools than the kernel itself. Something I really like about compiling the NetBSD kernel is it can be done on a system not running NetBSD. In other words, NetBSD can be cross-compiled very easily. Even with another CPU architecture, I've been compiling NetBSD kernels for EVB ARM, think Raspberry Pi, or for AMD64, think um, desktop computers, uh, from a Linux 64-bit system or from an Intel Mac. Overall, a simple process. When compiling NetBSD 9.1 from my DOM use that currently need CARP, some questions popped in my head. Which of my desktop systems is the fastest to compile NetBSD? Do I need a high core count or rather a high frequency, if not both? Do I need fast storage to get faster compilation times? So I decided to compile NetBSD on a few systems. What was at the time my main desktop computer with a Xeon X5670 CPU and 24 gigabytes of RAM, a mid-2012 non-retina 15-inch MacBook Core with a Core i7-3720QM CPU and 16 gigabytes of RAM, another mid-2012 non-retina MacBook Pro with 13 inches screen, a Core i5-3210M uh, CPU and also 16 gig of RAM. The desktop was running the latest Fedora at that time, 32 or 33 if I recall correctly, and the laptops were running macOS at 10.15 Catalina with all the updates installed. How did I test these systems? I made a very basic shell script that would compile the generic kernel profile for the AMD64 port, then clean the compile directory and do it again, each time increasing the number of make jobs from one to 20, sometimes 28. I also ran the same compilation from a RAM disk in order to check storage speed. Although each system runs on SATA 3 SSDs, the desktop Xeon computer only had a SATA 2 controller. Since build.sh is quite verbose, keeping track of uh, compile times was a matter of redirecting the output in log files and extract the start and end dates. Once the compiling jobs were done, I entered the results in LibreOffice calc sheet and I got the following results. Um, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to read a graph to you. Uh, and so there's a plot and it shows the increase in the number of make jobs from zero, but it's probably one, um, to 20, though the chart goes from zero to 25. Uh, and it shows a plateau effect uh, in compilation time as the number of jobs increases probably up to a number of job uh, pro cores the processor has. Uh, and there's a plot for each of them with and without a RAM disk. And I don't think the RAM disk, um, there was some variation against the with and without a RAM disk, but it doesn't look like it's having a huge effect. Um, so what did I learn from this? Despite being slightly older than the third gen Core i5 and Core i7, the higher frequency Xeon X5670 seems to give it some advantage. The compilation tools or the NetBSD kernel do not take advantage of running with more than six make jobs. Okay, that explains the plateau. Uh, more allocated jobs are a waste. Storage speed does not seem to be a bottleneck here. Trying to run the benchmark on a spinning hard drive could have been interesting. Compiling from a RAM disk does not seem to improve performance, but it seems to improve stability. Some numbers are off for instance, the compile time for two make jobs on the X5670. Now let's clearly answer my questions. My fastest machine for compiling a NetBSD kernel is clearly the desktop system with the X5670 CPU. I get the fastest compilation with six make jobs and a higher frequency seems to give better results. SATA SSD seems to do a decent enough job for storage. A RAM disk is not worth the rel if hassle to set up. Some other ideas to further enhance this benchmark. Try to run the benchmark on a CPU I can easily overclock so I could verify the impact of frequency alone. Try to run on a drive that is not the system drive. I guess this is one of the reasons some of the numbers are off. Try to run multiple instances of each benchmark and provide a chart for the means, which would reduce the impact of off numbers. Try to run the benchmarks with a variety of operating systems on the same hardware so I can determine which one is the fastest if there's a clear winner. Try to run the benchmarks with, with other kernel configuration files to check the impact of removing adding some features. Try to run the benchmarks with a more recent release of NetBSD or current. Try to run the benchmarks with Clang instead of GCC. I hope you enjoyed this post, and if you did, please share it on your favorite social networks. I really did enjoy the post, and I think Colin at Colin's article just just previously is a good hint where he says that the build is fitting in the disk cache, and so that's why there's not a big improvement for for moving to the RAM disk. I'm I'm really interested as why um, NetBSD doesn't scale to more than six jobs. That's a really interesting. Yeah really interesting thing to see that should be in, uh, looked deeper into because there's only more cpus we're going to get not fewer 
but yeah. also NetBSD's uh, job is to run on many architectures and many systems as possible. But many systems includes, you know, using all of the cores on a big system. Uh, That's true, yeah. So I, I'd be really surprised if it that. was like make failing to scale because FreeBSD uses BMake from NetBSD mm. and FreeBSD definitely scales with a number of jobs. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, I've, I, I've written an article about this very recently, but I also spent a lot of time building FreeBSD. Um, so I'm really, really interested to, to, to see more about this. Uh, I don't think comparisons between different operating systems are going to be particularly valid. You're going to be able yeah, to say like subtle differences. Yeah. Like you're going to be, you're going to be able to say that the entire system as shipped by vendor is different to entire system as shipped by vendor on the same hardware. Mm. Uh, you're not going to actually be able to have any more in-depth inferences because you're going to have different versions of uh, compiler for the host os host operating system, unless you unless you control for that, which is really difficult to do. This is why uh, there are lots of bad benchmarks and lots of warnings about <laughs> being really careful when you do benchmarking, like, like in the first article. Yeah, it's really cool. I hope to see more about this. It's mm. cool that NetBSD can be built on other operating systems. FreeBSD can now, but I think it's still a bit more involved. Yeah, that PC was in the cross-compiling uh, much earlier. Yeah, before it was but cool. they could easily benchmark various NetBSD versions, like from nine to ten to however, or going lowered even, and see what the performance differences were to the current version. That would certainly be interesting, and it's the same hardware, the same platform, the same software. It, oh, of it, course, it, those has changes, <laughs> but you can see differences. Yeah, but it, but it it only tells you if the entire system is different. So it allows you to say things like, if I built this software on NetBSD 9, it is faster or slower than if I built this software on NetBSD 8 as shipped. Right. But it doesn't tell you why. No, that doesn't. That's the next because iteration. There's, that there's too have many to variables into. in there. So you would need to then build this system with like, if you wanted to figure out if there were memory allocator changes between these two systems that were making the difference, you'd have mm -hmm. to really cut down the platform and then stabilize the the compiler versions and sometimes that's just not possible because newer systems use newer compiler features because freebase is constantly picking up new features yeah. as llvm updates uh which is, <laughs> makes it hilariously difficult to follow but it means that we get like we get loads of improvements for the system so we get like um runtime link optimization stuff yeah for free we basically have, well yeah yeah for free and we get to have um like i function support so that we get uh, optimized code for different platforms, but we can ship a single binary. So that allows us to have um, generic images for um, ARM64, but then be able to scale to the support, which is in these different processors. But yeah, so it's, it's really difficult to do these comparisons. Yeah, benchmarking is hard. But if you if you come to my EuroBSDCon talk in September, then you'll get to see me talk a lot about I'm doing these comparisons. Excellent plug here. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of conferences, by the way, we had last week's BSD CAN in the virtual form, where uh, I also had a part and uh, presented well my recorded uh, tutorial about Vim for beginners. And in the parallel track, there was this one: network management with the OpenBSD packet filter toolset from BSD CAN 2022. And Peter Hanstein, Massimiliano's two. Key, I hope, and Tom Smith, Smith with a Y, gave a presentation on PF at BSD CAN 2022. But it wasn't just PF, it was also like getting on spammers' nerves and like whole everything you could do with um, OpenBSD in your network to be a good network neighbor. And the, while at the video recording from the event has yet to appear, well, there was a lot of uh, stuff to put together. Um, the slides from the presentation may be viewed on Peter Hanstein's homepage. Uh, in the PF tutorial directory. And if you want to attend a session like this live with maybe updates that had happened in OpenBSD, check out the EuroBSDCon in Vienna, September 15, where they also present this tutorial live. Hopefully, we uh, will all hope that it will we'll happen be there. this way. We're, we're going to be there in person. Uh, this, yeah. came, this came from the, uh, not in Ottawa, what even our space or time would Zoom? Why Zoom department? <laughs> uh, which is actually, I think they're the ones that, that handle um, some of the paperwork I need. So it'd be mm. good if that department could uh, deal with these issues. <laughs> yeah, so there will be uh, material, my slides or my um, additional slides to my tutorial also on BSD Can's website. 
but give BSD can a bit of time uh, after that conference to put things together. A couple of uh, presenters will upload their slides as well. So you have a bit of information if you missed the conference and couldn't make uh, the online format. Okay, next up from the, the FreeBSD forums, which continue to surprise me with the very high quality FAQs and tutorials they post out there from Little Blue Daemon. We have hardware detection and diagnostics for new FreeBSD users and PCs. And it starts with, well, it turns out if you hit enter while well, in the title section of a poster writing, it will post immediately. Good to know. My bad. This may not be completed by the time it's reviewed. Actually, de it definitely won't be, uh, which might explain why there's users and PCs because it was a bit difficult to read. Um, and so they write, I decided to make a simple, repeatable checklist procedure for checking hardware compatibility and driver requirements before installing FreeBSD. The FreeBSD handbook doesn't have a comprehensive detect and detect and test hardware and drivers section. As far as I've noticed, there is a section in the installation chapter here uh, to review boot messages, including the hardware device probe, press the upper or lowercase s, and then enter to access a shell at the shell prompt, type more slash var run dmessage.boot and use the space bar to scroll through the messages. When finished, type exit to return to the welcome menu, which seems to be text from the yeah, from the installation chapter of the handbook, as I said. Um, and it's true, you can figure out what hardware the system is made out of from that alone, but I think it's a little opaque. When I searched for hardware diagnostics and detection in the forums, I found a thread discussing a non-existent port of a Linux hardware probe tool when I searched the forum without getting much useful intro. There's also a recent HW probe tool for FreeBSD, but it's a third party thing and not included with the installer images. I found a thread about that too. Someone made an excellent point about trust and running large Perl scripts off the web as root. And I agree that solution won't work for everyone and every system. So here's my in-progress personal pre-install procedure. It's a lot of P's. Uh, for testing hardware component compatibility and capabilities. That's a lot of C's. Uh, before installing FreeBSD on a new PC. This will definitely be updated a few times, especially when and or someone else actually tests things on AMD and ARM systems. I've only tested this on Intel so far. So far. And they have prerequisites. Uh, a USB booting personal computer for installation. You should have backed up all critical files on the internal hard drive that we wouldn't install a new system on it in this guide. Two spare USB flash drives, one of which has been formatted with a FreeBSD mini memstick image and the other which does not have any critical files on it. I recommend cheap USB V2 drives for this. A spare internet and web capable device. If you don't have one, look up the documentation ahead of time. You can print PDF documentation and printable and PDF printouts of web resources. This might be cost prohibitive, especially with a public printer, or you can print or handwrite your own notes instead. Uh, an internet connection using a FreeBSD compatible Ethernet or Wi-Fi interface connected to the installation target and or router gateway. And I'm gonna interject here. Oh no, they, they do it too. Uh, another, mm -hmm. another personal computer sharing a connection over a bridge, a mobile sh device sharing a connection over USB tethering, which is what I was gonna say we support. Uh, an Android device USB on the go tethering enabled is also a way to connect to public Wi-Fi that doesn't play nice with FreeBSD and or Linux systems in general. Trying that with a bridge NAT setup on a laptop might get your Wi-Fi card blocked from a public network. Ask me how I know. Uh, iOS also has USB tethering, but only works with the mobile network, not Wi-Fi. Uh, they mean it doesn't work to you tether an iOS device and it connects to a Wi-Fi net network for you. You have to tether with the device and it'll use 4G. Uh, relevant FreeBSD documentation. Uh, for a workstation system, you also want the X window system chapter. Okay. There's also a section on setting up NVIDIA drivers. Um, and for OEM PCs, including most if not all laptops, you can find a user manual and possibly a separate maintenance or service manual PDF. Um, and something about workbook. Okay. So the first boot, um, no, let's, so for the first boot, they talk about, um, figuring out how to get FreeBSD to boot by playing with the BIOS menu and there's quite a few steps. So I'm just going to skip over that. Um, but it's worth looking at if you want to do this hardware identification. What we want here is to gather as much information about the system's hardware and required drivers as we can with our current software. There's var run dmessage.boot and var log messages. But like I mentioned earlier, those are a little opaque. There are far clearer tools included with FreeBSD installation images. We'll go over the easiest tools and then I'll explore the entire 
dmessage boot file on my own system, extracting useful and specific hardware information. Note that devices which are not compatible with FreeBSD may still show up in these commands. You'll need to check the device's compatibility and behavior. You might save time by simply looking for devices on the hardware notes page, uh, links to a release, uh, and a search engine before you bother testing anything yourself. Some things might also not show up if they're not supported, which can make it really difficult to figure out if hardware support. The dev info command gives an overview of the entire device tree. For more information on this device tree, some readers might be interested in reading about FreeBSD's new bus architecture. Use dev info to get a, night, get a neat indented tree of device names demonstrating the actual device tree. Use dev info u to organize the devices by type rather than by their position in the device tree. I find this less useful as an overview, but it might help you find something specific if you need it. To get a more explicit view, view of a single device's position in the tree, use dev info p dev name. This will show the device's parent devices up to the root nexus zero device. The PCI conf command gives you an overview of the PCI device tree in particular. Your device's USB host, display, graphics card, internal storage, and likely other components will all be part of this device tree. Use PCI conf lv to get a detailed, neatly printed information about all your PCI devices. Uh, use PCI conf lv and the device, where device is the first part of the PCI hardware address. Um, and this will show you more information. Uh, trying to catch the indentation. Um, mm, that's a lot of stuff, yeah. Yeah, there are several commands that give information about storage devices. Oh, sorry, they, I missed. Uh, there's also a USB config, and they talk about using USB config to figure out what the stuff is on the USB bus. There are several commands that give you information about storage devices. Use cam control dev list to get a list of all cam compatible storage systems on your device. Use NVMe control for working with NVMe storage devices. Um, the test installation. Installing to a cheap USB flash drive will allow you to install and run advanced software for testing before you actually configure your final system. You can identify any hardware or driver level problems much more easily by doing a pragmatic minimalist installation testing with system features that you intend to use without committing to the complexity and customization your personal server or workstation desires. Having configured things successfully once, you'll be more confident and less clumsy in your final install. Um, there's a little bit more here, uh, but I think that's really great advice. If you want to try FreeBSD on some hardware, you can run a, on a USB stick. USB is fast enough now that it's not a problem. Like a fast USB 3 device, you can get like a 128 gig USB stick for very little money and then run FreeBSD from it and it'll work really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. I, I love these things that come from the forum. They're, they're, they're never anything I would ever think to write, but they're always really helpful. Yeah, and they're from users and they typically have been uh, through a certain number of iterations and have a couple of good selections or other forum users have uh, added yeah, to they're, it. Yeah, they're solving problems they see other forum users have. Uh, and as somebody who sits on the developer side of parts of the community, I don't really see these uh, learning the platform problems anymore because I've been learning the platform for 15 years. Yeah, we're still doing <laughs> It's still learning now. <laughs> and discovering, yeah. Okay, let's jump into the beast bits this week. We have a couple of things that we found interesting for you to uh, hear about. NetBSD has announced the Google Summer of Code 2022 projects. And those are uh, Brian Schnepp with Raspberry Pi GPU driver, uh, Aryun Bimarkar, sorry if the names are not correct, uh, INAD enhancements, uh, Piyush Sachteva, Sachteva, I don't know. Uh, emulating missing Linux syscalls. Uh, Vihas Makvana will work on introducing a new Wi Fi driver. And Vivek Kumar Sa will work on automating donor acknowledgement and information storage. The uh, community bonding period has already started from May 20 and will last until June 12. And then uh, during this time, the contributors are expected to coordinate with their mentors and community. And the actual coding period from June 13 to September 4 is afterwards. And then the contributors are expected to submit their final work, evaluate their mentors, and then get evaluated by their mentors in return. And the results will be announced in September 20. And we will hopefully have a result page from the NetBSD blog that we can present you in September to show what the results were of that. Cool. And then we also have the same story from the FreeBSD project mm -hmm. um, from the 20th of May, 2022. The FreeBSD project is pleased to announce that we're working with seven projects this year for Google's Summer of Code. Please join us in welcoming the following participants. Okay, I, I see the mistake I've made. Uh, Boyan Nova, Novokicic. <laughs> 
Beehive Debug Server Enhancements, Christos Margiolis, Instruction Level Dynamic Tracing, uh, Connor Bailey, FreeBSD boot, Bootloader Quality of Life Improvements, and WeWoo, uh, Add Station, Host AP, and Ad Hoc Mode to the WTAP WLAN Simulator. I don't know what any of that means. Uh, Jake Freeland, FreeBSD Graphics IGT GPU Tools Port. I also don't know what that means. Uh, Kochi Imai, uh, Linux Relator for PowerPC64. Saifid Said, rewrite the PJDFST DFS test suite. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and then there's a thank you to the FreeBSD developers serving as mentors. Um, John Baldwin, Mark Johnson, Warner Lashley, Wen, uh, Bjorn, Joseph, Manu, Justin Hibbets, and Alan Summers. And we look forward to project updates over the next few months. Welcome to the FreeBSD community. Yeah, I, it's great seeing yeah. a Google Summer of Code start and uh, having mentored two of these, not having to be worried about the student and hoping they're going to figure stuff out and they're going to settle in and actually ask you questions as they struggle. And It's really nice to see someone else yeah. have the worries and we just get the cool stuff at the end. <laughs> yeah, these are mentors who have done it at least once <laughs> and, uh, have experience. <laughs> in, not only in the mentoring, but also in the coding side yeah, they, of things. They changed GSOC this year so you don't have to be a student to enter as well. Um, and so if there are listeners that maybe have missed an opportunity to do this while they're at university or, or in secondary school, um, you might, if you want to take a summer off and be paid a small amount of money to work on FreeBSD, there is GSOC and you can now enter. Uh, and there's always great projects and there's a great way to get really uh, direct mentorship from somebody who is an expert in a system. I'd, I'd love... Yes, and many yeah. of these <laughs> stayed on in the projects after the project was over and continued working on it and then worked on other stuff and then became committers and then later became mentors yeah. for Google Summer of Code in, in turn. So it's all kind of a nice way of making sure this experience gets covered and carried over to the next generation. And then I found a while ago uh, some tweet on Twitter, as I'm prone to do, uh, Network from Scratch. This is a book in development, but you can read it from uh, for free. Uh, computer networks from scratch more uh, precisely and this might be interesting for people who always wanted to know about how this works of course you can give the author a bit of money if you like the book and you can read it completely on the web or uh, in pdf form i think um for a fee the pdf i, I read here but it's it's free in general and um yeah, it's networksfromscratch.com. And I think it will be interesting to many of our readers. Like, how does a network work in general? From a very basic uh, representation with pipes and balls uh, going through them to actual binary data and, you know, the networks that we are using to send uh, packets over the wire. And yeah, uh, this normally would hold the a uh, glorious section where people uh, provide feedback or read people's feedback but we're already a bit short on time and we didn't have enough feedback so we pushed that to next week's episode and to have enough but uh, never cease to send us feedback to feedback at bsdnow.tv any questions comments about uh, the show or stuff you found that you want to send us that we should cover uh, this is all welcomed and we have something then in the feedback section that's my little yep. blurb at the end. <laughs> yeah, confused. Don't know what to say now. Ask me a question. Uh, how was EMF camp in short? Oh, yeah, cool. So we, talk, we talked about this in the last show, which was actually a week ago rather than an hour ago, right. uh, as it normally is. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a conference report for EMF camp for the FreeBSD Journal. So I guess this is going to be my beta ah, run. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, EMF is electromagnetic field. They have run a series of festivals and one conference. Um, the festivals are um, out outdoors experiences. Uh, they're really difficult to categorize. I call them hacker camps, which doesn't help anybody understand what they are. Uh, and so an EMF camp is a bunch of nerds in a field. For EMF camp, it's sort of two and a half thousand people Ooh. in a field. And they run the, the services you would expect from a campsite. So there's places to, to pitch a tent. There are toilets and showers. And then there is a gigabit internet and power to your tent, as, as you expect from a campsite. Uh, and then they've run um, three 
stages with talks. So there's three tracks of talks. Um, there were five tracks of workshops, and then there was content run by participants in the camp that have small areas they call villages where they concentrate effort. Um, it is a very special place. If you look at the EMF hashtag on Twitter or probably Instagram, if that's how Instagram works, you probably see loads of pictures with um, stunning LED displays and artwork. Um, you probably see a lot of stuff from the nightclub they ran called Null Sector. And uh, Null Sector this time was sort of a science fiction under, I don't know, maybe not undersea, like a science fiction space lab you would find on a planet. And it had... Um, a big puzzle hunt and I found out after the festival that the reward for the puzzle was you got a key code into a room where a secret room in the bar um where you could then get a time for another <gasps> puzzle oh cool so you, you by solving a puzzle you were rewarded by access to an escape room <laughs> with more puzzles at a certain time <laughs> uh, with more puzzles um and that is sort of typical of what goes on at um uh, a hacker camp uh, an EMF camp in particular there's just loads of stuff going on, loads of content which is generated by the people mm. that are there. Um, there were loads of robots just driving around. There was a robot that is sort of famous, which is um, it's like a little trolley you can drag around, and it plays music based on its uh, GPS location and how fast oh, it is moving. Cool. Um, and so that one you move around. There was also a cyber truck model driving around that you could connect to from the internet and drive around remotely. Uh, there is a giant robotic spider. And didn't know people you had me that. at spider. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you had me at spider. Yeah, so there, there's loads of stuff, and it was a, it was a great festival. You can really capture some of the the visuals by looking at Twitter and seeing the stuff that people mm. posted. But you can also get to live this experience. There was another hacker camp this summer, actually called MCH, uh, May Contain Hackers, which is happening in the Netherlands. Um, I think they still have tickets. If they don't, then you've missed out, and you'll have to wait until next year for CCC okay. camp. Uh, but these things are great. There weren't any FreeBSD talks at EMF camp this year because I pulled my talk because of uh, scheduling issues. Uh, I don't think they were going to take it because it was probably a bit obscure. Mm. Um, it's happening every year? But at CCC EMF camp... camp? Uh, it happens, so EMF camp happens every mm -hmm. second year uh, when there aren't pandemics. Right. So there should be an event in 2024. Okay, so prepare talks um, early. Yeah. Global pandemics uh, accepting, of course. Uh, and of course, if lots of BSD people want to go to these things, then we can run our own content. We can have a miniature BSD camp in a field. Yeah, it's entirely right. doable. It's it's certainly nice in this time. At of CCC year. camp in 2019, yeah, sorry, at CCC camp in 2019, I ran uh, a BSD meetup out of a village I'm involved in, and we had sort of 10 people there. That's almost enough to run a half day conference. Yeah, but you. So yeah, we could easily, easily do, yeah. do this. This is per perfectly nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we also forgot to mention EuroBSDCon's schedule is out and people can start registering for the conference. But maybe we talk about this more in next week's episode where we look into the schedule a bit more. Very cool. Thanks for the report. Uh, seems you had a nice time and uh, saw a couple of people again that you haven't seen in a while. It. it yeah, it is great. And I came home and it was sunny, so my tent is dry. Uh, there were there were um, uh, like hurricane strength winds and then an entire day of um, rainstorms. But other than that, it was like the weather okay. was okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the unpredictable part of all these things. That That is what happens outside. There's weather. There's, yeah, yeah, inside, outside. there's internet that's weather. That's where the pizza man comes from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's close it at this uh, yeah funny note um we'll be back next week with another episode and in the meantime you can find us on the twitters bsd uh now is our twitter handle as well as our twitch handle when we stream and um otherwise you have our usual spots in your uh podcatchers every wednesday we record and then thursday fridays the episode comes out 